Hey everybody, it's Lon Seib and it's time once again for your weekly wrap up and this week we're going to do my 2021 tech predictions and then at this time next year we're going to look back and see if I am right on any of this stuff. Let's get to it. Now my predictions today are going to span across five different areas of technology that touch our lives in some way, shape, or form. Some are fun, some are functional, and others are more serious. And of course, we'll begin with the most serious one, which is biotechnology. Now, of course, there's been a lot of investment in biotech over the last 20 years or so, but we're going to see an acceleration of that, especially as it relates to testing. I think there's been a lot of progress made on genetic sequencing and vaccines, obviously. These mRNA vaccines have been proven tremendously effective, even though they didn't have much time to develop the vaccine for this specific disease. But the fact that you can ramp up a vaccine so quickly uh, gives me a lot of hope that I think we're on the right track to shortening the length of future pandemics and actually shortening the one that we're in the middle of. But my biggest frustration, both as a business owner and a person and somebody that's been uh, serving on my local board of education for the last 15 or 16 years, is that we haven't had good testing throughout this entire endeavor. Uh, Some of it is related to all the political nonsense going on, but there's also just a degree of technological limitations that we've kind of hit in doing the kind of testing that we're doing at scale. The best test you can get is one of these PCR tests where they take a nasal swab and then sequence that sample to see if you have the virus in your system. It just takes time to process these tests and we just can't get them done quickly enough. So I think we're gonna see a lot of investment in that. And we're also going to be looking at, I think, some tremendous advancements in figuring out what your risk level and prior exposure to the virus is. And I've got some selfish reasons for making this prediction because as many of you know, I came back super sick from CES 2020. I had a fever of 103 plus for almost a week. I felt terrible. I had a lot of the COVID-19-like symptoms, but of course this was before we thought the, uh, the disease had spread out of China. And there was a great article and a radio story on American Public Radio where they interviewed a bunch of us. I was interviewed for the story, but because I didn't have a positive antibody test, they really couldn't uh, put me into it because we just didn't know if I actually had it. Uh, They did, though, find one guy that did test positive for antibodies, and this was about four or five months after the show had concluded. So he could have got it at CES or he could have come into contact with it afterward. Who knows? But I do know that a lot of us came back really sick from that show, some more mild like I was and others more severe. And I came into a contact with a lot of people who came home sick just like I did uh, throughout the course of that week. Now, one area of research that's been really fascinating to me has been the work around T-cells and testing for T-cell reactivity to this particular virus. Now, of course, uh, T-cells have been very well known among immunologists for a long time and fairly well understood. But there hasn't been a way to really effectively test for T-cell reactivity at scale. So you can do T-cell testing and see whether or not people's T-cells react to a virus like COVID-19, but you really can't do it at scale at the moment because it does require a lot of intensive lab work to get the result. But there's been some activity in this area that might lead to some innovations happening in the course of the next few months, which we'll get to in a second. Now, one other interesting thing related to this topic is that a study that was done uh, and published here in Nature Reviews uh, found that there's a level of reactivity out in the population from people who were never exposed to this particular virus. In the course of 
testing whether or not their T-cell test was effective in this study, uh, they had a control sample of blood that was obtained in the United States between 2015 and 2018, before the virus, of course, was in the population. And they found of that control sample, 50% of the old blood had T-cells that were reacting to the COVID-19 virus. Isn't that crazy? And that might explain, and there's been some speculation to this among researchers, that reactivity might explain why the range of symptoms is so varied out in the population, why some people have no illness, some people have a little illness like I had, and others have a much more severe reaction. And think about this. If you had a way that you could test for this reactivity, you would know who was exposed prior, and you may also know what your risk level might be, so you can determine whether or not it's safe for you to go back to work or travel. And it might allow for people to make better decisions about what they can do to contribute to the economy, for example. I've been essentially locked up here for the last eight or nine months, and perhaps I didn't need to be. Perhaps I already have a reaction that just can't be tested at the moment because these tests can't be done at scale. And I think this is an area we're going to see some tremendous innovation. By the way, if you're interested in this topic, uh, Sanjay Gupta wrote up a really good summary of the study on CNN's website, and I definitely suggest you check it out. I thought it was really uh, useful to get his summary of why this is so significant. Now, there is something on the horizon here that might allow this test to happen at a greater scale. Uh, there's a company called Adaptive Biotechnologies, and they have, they say, a test that can be done at a larger scale, perhaps not as uh, wide scale as an antibody test could be done, but certainly much higher scalability than uh, prior attempts at T-cell testing, and they took a new approach to it. They were working on this test with Microsoft for some other diseases, and of course they found that it would work with COVID-19 as well. Uh, so check out this article in GeekWire. I did reach out to the company. I'm trying to get tested. So once their test is approved by the FDA, I will get one. I don't care what it costs. I'm just curious. And we'll see what happens with it. But stay tuned for that. And they're not the only ones working on this. There's another company called Indoor Biotechnologies that I've also been in touch with. And they have a similar test that they're working on as well. And I think this look at T-cell reactivity, in addition to active infection testing with the PCRs and the uh, prior infection testing with the antibodies is going to really, I think, help give policymakers the information they need to make good recommendations. Because right now, and I'll be honest, you know, we're reacting to things after the fact and, and assuming that everybody has the same level of risk. And I think if you can narrow down where those areas of risk are, find the people that were already infected to a much more accurate degree than you can now with antibody testing. I think future pandemics may not be as crippling economically, and these tests are going to be really important for that, and I think we're going to see a lot of development there as the year progresses. All right, let's move on to some transportation predictions, and 2021, without question, is going to be the year that you can buy a full self-driving car. You can buy the car right now, actually, from Tesla, uh, but of course, you have to get the software downloaded to enable that feature first. And that software right now is in beta. And I've been following this guy, Dirty Tesla, as he's been experimenting with this beta test as it's been progressing. He's now on, I think, beta 7 or 8. Uh, you can check out his channel linked here on screen. 
And the reason why his channel is called Dirty Tesla is because he lives kind of in a rural area down a dirt driveway. So he's been testing it on rural roads, but he's not far from a more congested suburb with some really crazy traffic configurations. And the car has been doing exceptionally well. It's been really fun to watch him uh, as he's driving around. Now, I think most Teslas made in the last two years or so have the hardware on board for this already. So for many folks, it's just shelling out a couple of grand. I think it's like seven or $8,000, actually, uh, for the full self-driving package. And then once that software is enabled, they push it down to you and your car can drive itself. Now, you do have to supervise the vehicle. You're responsible for everything the car does while you're driving. They recommend you don't take your hands off the wheel. But I've been really impressed with what Tesla has put together here, especially given that their system isn't using LiDAR like some of the other self-driving systems we've looked at. It is pretty much just using its cameras uh, and its uh, sonar sensors on the side and rear of the car and, of course, the forward-facing radar. And that's what it's using to drive around. And it's been really amazing watching uh, the progression of this. And again, this year is the year that I think most Tesla owners will get this delivered to their vehicles. So let's move on now to your PC. And this prediction is not what you're getting, but what you're not going to get, at least on the Windows side. I think that ARM PCs are going to be limited mostly to Macs in the coming year. This might change in 2022 or 2023, but I think right now the performance that we're seeing out of these ARM processors on a laptop is going to be mostly limited to the uh, line of Apple computers running with their custom silicon, also known as the Apple M1 chip. Now, we did review the MacBook Air that I'm using right now to run the slideshow, uh, which you can find at the link on screen. This thing is amazing. I can't tell you how pleased I am with it. It's got great battery life, of course, but it doesn't sacrifice performance to get that battery life. In fact, the performance on this thing is better than my MacBook Pro that I got a couple of years ago. It's incredibly fast, even for video editing and all the other stuff that I do. And of course, you've been seeing many other YouTubers like me talking about how awesome and innovative this is. It's really a big change. And what's interesting is that on the Windows side, we have ARM options there too, uh, like the Surface X here. They deliver the battery life, but they don't deliver the performance just yet. And I think that's the big issue here is that this is a real chicken and egg kind of problem to have in that Apple has decided we're going to move to this new processing architecture and that's it. Uh, but in the Windows world, you've got Microsoft who writes the operating system and then a bunch of hardware manufacturers that make the hardware. And then, of course, Qualcomm who's making the processor. There's not one single driver of this innovation there. So that's why I think we're not going to see much change on the Windows side. And I don't think we're going to see any change on the Windows side for ARM until the Windows ARM machines get up to the level that Apple has produced with its computers. And you can see this article in Extreme Tech comparing the Apple M1 to the latest chip that's running on the ARM-based Windows machines. I believe it's the Qualcomm 8CX. And the M1 here, according to Extreme Tech and their testing, is totally crushing it. I do actually have one of those 8CX computers in from Lenovo. I haven't reviewed it yet because I was waiting for the 64-bit stuff to come out for it. So we might look at it a little bit later in the year. But I just don't see this happening on the Windows side in 2021. There's no processor that is really driving anything right now on the performance side to make these computers competitive to what Apple is doing. And the only reason why I don't think Windows is going to move quicker to it is that Apple has historically had a very small percentage of market share in the PC industry. 
I don't see that changing all that much. I see this probably getting some customers back that they may have been losing over the last couple of years as Windows computers got better. But I don't think they're going to move the whole industry over to ARM in the next year, just given how little uh, share of the market that Apple currently has. That can change, but right now I think it's going to be business as usual on the PC side, and we're going to see some super fast Macs on the horizon as the year progresses. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. But if you've been struggling with your poor internet connection, I do believe 2021 will be the year that satellite broadband becomes a viable option for people out in more rural areas that are not getting fiber optic or cable service. And of course, this is going to be brought to you by your two favorite billionaires, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Now, Musk, of course, has a huge head start with Starlink. We interviewed somebody uh, with their Starlink connection a few weeks ago here on the channel. And check out just how much better Starlink is versus what is currently available to folks out in rural portions of this country and many others. HughesNet is kind of the go-to satellite provider. They've got a geosynchronous satellite up in orbit. Look at this, ping rates of 770 milliseconds, and you're looking at maybe two and a half megabits per second up and down. On the Starlink side, this guy, same spot, uh, is getting 40 millisecond ping times, 160 megabits per second downstream, and 14 megabits per second upstream. A very usable connection And everyone I've been talking to that is getting Starlink is just loving the fact that they now have a broadband option. And SpaceX has been launching these satellites almost every two weeks. So I think as the year progresses, that constellation is going to get larger and larger and more people will be able to get the service. It is a little more expensive than your traditional terrestrial broadband, but I think for a lot of folks, they don't mind paying a little bit more to get the kind of performance that we're seeing here. And if you're interested in this topic, definitely check out the Starlink subreddit where there's a lot of Starlink folks uh, talking about their experiences with it. And I found it to be a really great resource. And unlike traditional wireline broadband, you might actually have a choice of satellite provider. Amazon says they're making some breakthroughs with their Project Kuiper, which is a similar low earth orbit system. And they claim their prototype is delivering 400 megabits per second downstream already. And of course, this is still in early development here. It's not operational like Starlink is in some portions of the northern U.S., but it is definitely uh, becoming a hotter space to be in. And it's really exciting to see broadband make its way out to a majority of the country, which is where I think we're going to end up by the end of 2021 with Starlink. And perhaps Project Kuiper will uh, not be far behind, which is really good for consumers, especially those who've been really struggling to get a decent internet connection. Now, I have been a big fan of virtual reality ever since the modern VR systems came out in 2016 or so. I think it's like stepping into the holodeck. I love the inventive development that we're seeing on it, a lot of experimentation and different types of gameplay. It's a great workout, depending on the game that you're playing. I just think it's just awesome. But unfortunately, consumers haven't adopted the same level of enthusiasm that I have here. But we're seeing some things change this year, and the big one is that I think the Oculus Quest 2 has been a real hit by VR standards. And it's been a hit this year for a couple of reasons. One is that this is a nice refinement of 
what the Oculus Quest 1 was last year, but also the Quest 2 is available and it's been available during the holiday shopping season. And that's a big deal because you had people out there looking for the Xbox Series X and the PlayStation 5. They couldn't find one anywhere, but there's been plenty of Oculus Quest 2s out there which are a really neat alternative, I think, if you can't get that PlayStation under the tree. They dropped the price of the Oculus by about $100. I think the entry-level model now is like $299. And it's improved in a couple of different areas. It feels a little bit lighter. It's not as uncomfortable to wear as the original one was. Uh, It's got a higher frame rate, a higher resolution, a faster processor, and it's got the same two-hour-ish battery life that the original had. And it is so much fun. And because the Quest 1 has been out for two years, there's a really big software library waiting for people when they first put this thing on their head. And the reason why there's so much software on the Quest platform is that it's proven itself to be not quite lucrative, but perhaps sustainable for some of the smaller development houses that have been making VR software. Back in September, about a month before the Oculus Quest 2 was released, uh, Mark Zuckerberg announced that 35 Oculus Quest developers had passed a million dollars in revenue. And that is not, again, huge for the gaming industry, but big for VR. And this might drive more development to the Quest over other platforms. But there might be some opportunities here if there is money to be made for Sony, perhaps, to move the PlayStation VR headset over to the new PS5 console, which is much more powerful. They've got a great range of software already on the PS4 that they can enhance for the PS5. And perhaps many PS4 owners never got the headset in the first place. So there's going to be a pretty good library waiting for folks on the PlayStation side should Sony decide to move VR over to that. Microsoft's been developing the Windows VR technology a little bit more. HP has a new headset coming out that uses Windows Mixed Reality. And you might see something go on to the Xbox, which is an equally powerful new console. So I think there's going to be more going on with VR here as the year progresses. I think Oculus is going to dominate the discussion initially, but this might lead Sony and Microsoft to jump into it as well, given that they've got hardware in place that can handle all this stuff and perhaps do it a little bit better than the little Qualcomm processor on the Oculus headset. But really, the Quest 2 is great. I've been using it as a PC headset as well. Really versatile product, and it's really just a fun thing that I think is going to do Uh, very, very well here as the year progresses and, again, might help VR find its footing. Now, on the AR side, I think we might see something from Apple here. They've been doing a lot of AR stuff with their phones and iPads, and I think it's only a matter of time before Apple maybe releases some kind of AR glasses or something that would allow you to augment your experiences outside because I I think it's cool to bring your iPad out to look at your garden, but it'd probably be easier to have some glasses on your head versus having to hold a phone up, for example. And they've been getting really good at this AR thing. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. And maybe we'll see something from Apple in the months to come here that will, of course, lead others in the industry to explore AR as well. So that is it for my 2021 predictions. Let me know what your predictions are down in the comment stream. Let me know if you thought that anything that I predicted was totally ridiculous. Whatever you got on your mind, let me know. I want to hear about it. And again, we'll revisit this topic Uh, in 2021 in December and see if any of this stuff came true. So stay tuned for that. Now, this week's wrap-up is being brought to you by all of you, and I want to thank a bunch of super chatters who contributed during the live streams we did last week. They include Mark Dell, Logi KGR, Eric's Variety Channel, Thomas Anfang, Chanfle98, Toys Are For Boys, and Slappy McPhee. 
We also got a couple of new supporters this week. They included Robert Salida, who contributed via Patreon. Thomas Page joined our YouTube membership page. And HB contributed via the donor box page. I want to thank everyone for their contributions this week and everyone who's been contributing on an ongoing basis. And I want to thank all of you who watch on a regular basis too, because all of those things equal channel growth. And down below in the video description, we have a playlist to everything we shot over the past week. Now, if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution. We're on Floatplane. We're on Patreon. We've got our donor box page. And of course, we support the YouTube membership program. You can find my other channels here on screen, including an audio version of this show uh, that has been revitalized for my podcast, which is available on all major podcatchers. And I would love for you to visit my Amazon page at lon.tv slash Amazon shop and follow me there because I do a lot of live stuff on Amazon as well. You can engage with us here on our email list and our Facebook group. And then, of course, we've got the store where I sell previously reviewed items at a price lower than new. These are the items that I bought to review here on the channel. So if you're looking for something, check out the store. And we have an email alert that goes out whenever we add something to the mix. So be sure to check that out so you don't miss anything that gets added to the store. That's going to do it for this one. Thanks for watching. Let me know what you thought down in the comments below. Have a great and safe new year, and hopefully 2021 will be much better than what we just experienced in 2020. That's going to do it for now. Until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Brian Parker, Jim Peter, Tom Albrecht, Frank Lewandowski, Mark Bollinger, and Chris Allegretta. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.